Okay. Is there any specific format, or we're just going to go where the wind takes us? We're kind of doing the wind thing. Uh, Excellent. Cause, yeah, because the show is... Are you putting shelves up? Take your seat, movie fans. The film is about to start. Welcome to Craft of Services, the show where we look at the bad films of cinematic history, the movies that critics rejected but audiences embraced. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban. I'm also the host of the Just Enough Trope podcast and the Enterprising Individuals podcast on this, the Just Enough Trope Network. Find out more at justenoughtrope.com. Joining me on the show today is Melissa F. Olson, author of Dead Spots and the Scarlet Bernard series, also the Boundary Magic series, as well as Nightshades with Tor.com Publishing and more. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to do uh-huh. this. Good to have you here. Good to have someone on this safari with me. <laughs> it's dangerous to go alone. Uh, you're an author of urban fantasy, but you're a movie fan too. Is it safe to say that you're a bad movie fan? Um, yes and no. I actually um, studied film at the University of Southern California. So I uh, actually sort of was educated in this stuff, which makes it almost worse when I like really <laughs> terrible, terrible movies. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was in college, there were a lot of people talking about like the most recent silent French film. And I would be like, yeah, but seriously, how funny is Jaws the Revenge? <laughs> right. And that's a, so that's, was, a, that's a good film school, too, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. It is quite a very good film school. Yeah. And um, my initial intention was to kind of work in that industry and then the fates kind of aligned themselves differently, and I ended up writing. But yeah. um, I still love a good, bad movie. Not as much with alcohol as I used to, but, you know, still. <laughs> sure. yeah. Still. Those lubricants uh, certainly help. What do you, what do you get? What's, what, what's the joy of a, of a good, bad film? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, you know, when I was in college, we had this instructor who uh, – w- you know, they, they get actual filmmakers to teach the classes at USC because they're right there in LA. So why not? And, um, this gentleman who is an awesome guy and one of his biggest features on his IMDb page was the movie silent predators, which is one of those sci-fi Saturday afternoon horror movie of the week things. (laughs) Right. And um, so being just a bunch of degenerates as we were, we hounded this poor instructor until finally he got us a a copy to watch together on VHS because that's like all he had. And so we went to like the one of our – this is a very small class, like maybe 12 kids. We were pretty tight. So we went to the one of our houses who had – which had a VCR – and we sat there and we did tequila shots and we watched this movie and oh my gosh, my dog, my 12 year old dog is named for one of the characters in this movie for <laughs> real because it is so freaking funny. It's Harry Hamlin just at his best. Yeah. And like every time you think it can't get more ridiculous, they would go into snake vision <laughs> where we are now seeing from the snake's perfect snake's perspective so the camera's like a foot off the ground and it's red (laughs) you know because as we know snakes only see in murder red right exactly 
So, you know, whenever I think about bad movies, I think about this specific experience of being in a group of of people my age sitting around laughing our asses off at this movie. And it wasn't funny just because it was a professor, although that was, you know, a marvelous icing on the cake. It was funny because it's so ridiculous that you laugh. And at that time, I'm not sure they were intentionally funny. You know, eventually sci-fi kind of wised up to the fact that everyone was laughing at their movies and they decided to roll into it, which I appreciate. But uh, at this point, I think they were still trying to make horror movies. (laughs) And, you know, just something about the honest effort combined with the hilarious result is just very appealing to me. Yeah. It's like the, the absence of cynicism. Yes, I agree. And it's also, it doesn't require much of you. You know, I was talking recently about the movie Wonder Woman, which is a fantastic film. Uh I hope it wins many Oscars. I'm so proud of how it's done and what it does for women and female filmmakers. But the truth is that watching that movie is kind of rough Uh because it gives you all the feelings. It's so good that it, you know, it makes you sad. It makes you happy, exuberant, depressed, grieving. Like it's an emotional ride because Uh it's so good and so well made and that's wonderful and i'm so glad those movies are being made but there's also something to be said for the movie that doesn't require anything of you yeah you know for where you just all you're supposed to do is sit back laugh goof off on your cell phone and enjoy it as much as you feel like (laughs) escape yeah, I think there's a place for that, too. Yeah. And a lot of my film school compatriots would probably disagree with me. But, <laughs> like, I went and saw The Mummy two times in theaters. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I sure did. Uh, no regrets. Hashtag no regrets. Because it is just, it is silly and campy and fun. And it, it, it doesn't require anything of me. Yeah. Except, like, the ticket price. Yeah. Uh, and I went to, like, you know, 10 a.m. shows, so not not a lot of money. <laughs> right. That. But right. Yeah. I do appreciate, you know, with life being as stressful as it is these days, I have a great appreciation for movies that are meant to entertain us in a very relaxed, no strings attached kind of way. Yeah. I agree. Like the mummy was very fun. And um, I was pulled down a little bit while watching it because of not because of, you know, like you said, with Wonder Woman, there are like very important things being discussed. But the whole desire by studios to like push this into um, a franchise, you know, and like now I watch movies and instead of being able to have fun, I'm like making sure that I'm seeing the Easter eggs or the the setups. Yeah, that they're doing yeah. for like the next film. So that made me a little, I was a little tense about that. But yeah, if you can just sit back and just have a lot of fun with that film. Yeah, I mean, the 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 moment where Russell Crowe, like they do such a great bait and switch with Russell Crowe because, you know, he, he has the opening voiceover that explains everything and you're like, right. oh, okay, Russell Crowe has a mortgage and uh, he needs to like get a paycheck for like having a gravelly voice. Sure, all right. So right. he does like a couple of these scenes with the exposition and you're just kind of leaned back and you you're sort of, you know, you've resigned yourself to this version of him and then he does the switch where he become goes from being Henry Jekyll to Mr. Hyde. Right. And because they've spent, you know, 45 minutes of the movie lulling you into thinking that his he's got this throwaway character, it's just so intensely fun. Yeah, he gets he a lot become, more fun. 
He does. Yeah. And it, it came out and not came out of nowhere because obviously you're waiting for it to happen. But I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, did you hear just uh, on a, bit, a little bit of current events what James Cameron said about the Wonder Woman film recently? No, I didn't. He said, and I'm totally paraphrasing because it's one of those articles that I sort of hate read for a while and I flipped away. But he basically sees he doesn't know what everybody's so excited about with the new Wonder Woman movie. And he sees it as the same kind of like um, exploitative thing that we've just Hollywood has done throughout its existence. And, of course, tried to turn the conversation back to. Uh, a character like Sarah Connor, who's not, you know, glamorous and we're not worried about how she looks and she's a bad mom right. and she's flawed and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it it is a tough balancing act. It's hard to say this is the perfect feminist film, yeah. especially because our understanding of what feminist means continually evolves. Right. Um, for example... You know, this movie and and Wonder Woman is an established property. You can't just say, okay, this is gritty Sarah Connor Wonder Woman. Like, there are certain beats you (laughs) have to hit. (laughs) I know, right? Uh, That would be my Wonder Woman show. No, um, they they made so many changes in such subtle, brilliant ways. Like, she no longer runs around in a tube top. Did you notice she has a strap? Right. So, you know, for years and years, comic book uh, readers, especially female comic book readers, have complained that it it is kind of unrealistic and silly for her to be running around in like a corset because, you know, when you're running and you you have boobs. Lots of jumping, lots of landing. Accidents can happen, man. Right. And uh, and that's not very, you know majestic and superhero-ish. <laughs> I mean, maybe it is, but it's also not PG-13. Anyway. Right, yeah. And but- <laughs> Patty Jenkins actually said something to that effect. I don't think it was in response, but just when she was talking about the film that, like, people are complaining about this and she's like, what do you want? Like, we've given you this amazing story. We've shown her as a strong character. She dresses that way because that's the way the character's always dressed and now you're going to tell her how to dress? Like, what? what is your issue here exactly? Yeah. But she does have a strap for a lot of the movie. It's right. hidden under her hair. And so you don't notice it always until you see her from the back and then you realize, oh, okay, that connects in the front under her hair. So they did this very kind of sneaky, sly thing where they made this change, but it's hard to see unless you're really watching for it, which I did because <laughs> that's who I am. Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I like Sarah Connor. I like Wonder Woman. I don't think there's like only one spot for a feminist character. Right. You know, it's not a contest. It should be more of like a, a welcoming party with lots and lots of people. Right. Well, there's only room for James Cameron and James Cameron's, uh, James Cameron's world anyway. So. Right, right. Uh, hey, as a um, like a lot of movie fans and aspiring screenwriters or even film students, you worked for Blockbuster back in the day. <laughs> I did. Yes, I did. All of the screenwriters and critics I know have worked at a movie store at some point. What is the benefit for a movie fan? Like, why has everybody done that? Well, I'm kind of the worst person to ask this question because <laughs> I worked at the Blockbuster um, in Hollywood on La Cienega. Oh, wow. So... I literally waited on Tom Cruise. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> when he was dating Penelope, they came right. in together. They were, as one would expect, pocket-sized. And, um, <laughs> and you know, I, I checked them out. And by that, I mean I rang them up at the cash register. Right. I mean, I also kind of checked them out, not in a creepy way, but you know what I mean. Right. Uh, so, so, you know, for me, it, it's hard to say, 
oh, there's no benefit to it because, hey, like I met Tom Cruise because of Blockbuster, <laughs> you know? Right. But um, I think that one of the reasons there's that connection is because like with Blockbuster, you got five free movie rentals a week. Okay. So that's – and often it was a movie that was not coming out until the following week. Oh, Because okay. the, the employees get them early. Mm-hmm. So um, – it's almost a sort of self-education in film because if you grow up in the Midwest, like I do, where nothing should ever be wasted, you start like setting that goal for yourself to be watching five movies a right, week. Right. And I remember the summer that I was 18 before I left for school, I was determined to see some of these classic movies that I'd never actually made the time to sit down and watch. Right. And so I used my blockbuster employee ship to rent like Casablanca and The Godfather and Clockwork Orange and all these different movies that like everyone talked. This was shortly after AFI did their 100 Years, 100 Movies thing. Okay, yeah. And I was like, thank you for just doing my summer homework for me. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I kind of went down that list. So to me, there were tremendous benefits in working there. I mean, the the amount of money I would have had to pay to rent that many movies that summer. Oh, yeah. The reality of a pre-streaming society. Yes. And I know that Blockbuster has and did and still does get a lot of hate but i gotta say that company was amazing for me because i worked there in high school i worked there in college when i came home and i had a baby and i couldn't find a day job that would make me enough money to pay for daycare i worked nights at blockbuster oh nice you know so i mean like being a blockbuster employee saved me on many occasions <laughs> i wish that i had the same experience the Not one so much. the one of two times that i attempted to get a job at a movie store i never actually worked at one was uh, one of the interviews was at blockbuster and i think i lost them right around the time that they asked me to recommend pretend you're recommending a movie to a customer Uh-oh. and i picked uh, hudson hawk and the guy's What's face wrong just with Hudson Hawk his eyes everything? and his face closed, and that interview was over at that point. Oh man! I know, Hudson right? Hawk should be on this podcast for just hilarious, weird, bad movies. Twenty six percent, twenty six percent of Rotten Tomatoes. Someday, someday. someday well, anyway, <laughs> the name of the show is Crafted Services. We're still a newish show, so I'll go over once more what it's all about. Uh, it began as a segment on my show, the Just Enough Trope Podcast. Um, the idea that everybody has a movie that they love, uh, that they would die defending and that you could look at the uh, the score you know the rating review or at the rotten tomato score and it's below 50 percent and you're like what huh how is that so on this show we'll be looking at some of those films the big rule for the show is the films we pick with few if any exceptions must be rated 49 percent or below on rotten tomatoes or on metacritic and it has to be a film that is remembered fondly uh, by at least you or somebody that you know (laughs) <laughs> and before we continue, I got to state for the record, this show is not in the pocket of Big Tomato. We don't endorse Rotten Tomatoes. We're not even connected to them. In fact, this show may end up... Wait a minute. Are you in the pocket of Big Tomato? That sounds... I'm... Yeah. No, we're not. <laughs> that sounds like a, a whole different like mob being run by Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. It's, oh man, it's Big Tomato. What There's are you going to do? No ketchup on us at all. It's like Big Oil. I guarantee. (laughs) Uh, And this show, we may end up uh, being a fairly solid repudiation of Rotten Tomatoes. We'll see. We'll see. As a movie fan yourself, what do you think of sites like Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic? Um, I have, I I mean, I have some mixed thoughts. Uh, Recently, Brett Ratner had an interview where he bemoaned uh, how 
Rotten Tomatoes was like ruining all of Hollywood and film. Okay, sure. And there, and it, I've seen it, a lot of think pers- pieces like that recently. Yeah, and it personally like destroyed his career. Oh please. I think I think these are tools. Brett's and you decide Brett. how much you use a tool and yeah, how right. important it is to you. Yeah. Like if you decide that you are going to live and die by Rotten Tomatoes and you will never see a movie unless it's rated fresh, then you've kind of put yourself into a box here. You know, like you've limited yourself. Right. Um, and maybe that's what you're into. That's fine. But um, I think that Rotten Tomatoes is brilliant as a guiding tool that you have to really consider before you go see a movie um, or that you have to consider how important you're going to make it, I should yeah. say. Uh, like when The Mummy came out, I really wanted to go see it because I love the ancient Egyptian stuff. I was so intrigued by the whole Penny Dreadful in the modern day kind of premise mm-hmm. um, of doing like this uh, dark universe. I was disappointed that Tom Cruise was in it, but there were so th- many things that I was interested in. And then it came out and it got like a 13%. <laughs> right. And I could have, and I almost did say, oh, nope, 13 is just, it's too low. I can't do it. But I just kind of said, you know what? Screw it. This is a movie I want to see. I think I might get enjoyment out of it uh, because it checks these certain boxes that appeal to me personally. And I had a great time. I I don't regret it for a second. Um, I actually went back with my husband because I started being afraid that I was just like losing it because I'm like, (laughs) this isn't that bad. And I actually made my husband. No, I didn't make him. He was interested by then because I had talked about it for two hours. He he went back with me and he's like, you're right. This isn't that bad. <laughs> so these were two fun experiences that I could have robbed myself of if I took Rotten Tomatoes as law. Yeah. Something else you lose with the aggregation aspect is that usually, and especially you've experienced this, I'm sure, living in like a small town or living in the Midwest, is that you get your local reviewer or like there's one or two of them and you don't necessarily agree with them, but you can kind of gauge off of like, oh, he didn't like it, so I will. And once you eliminate that and you've got a hundred different reviewers, you can't, there's no guidepost anymore to like, well, how do I interpret the score? Oh, yeah, that's been one of the really unfortunate, I mean, one of many unfortunate things to come out of, you know, what the Internet newspapers trying to find their place among the Internet is we've lost many, many, many local movie critics. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be that every decent sized paper had their own designated movie critic. And now most of them get it from um, the AP or they reprint, you know, whoever's posting these days at rogerebert.com or whatever. Right. Um, so you no longer have like the people of Minneapolis having their own guy. Maybe they do. I, this is just an example. (laughs) Sure. I don't know about Minneapolis, but I don't think Madison does. You know, if, if there, if there is a designated film critic, they can only do a movie after it comes out usually because they're not in LA and the whole business has really changed a lot. So it's harder to have one person that you can trust. And I think that that's something they don't really take into account when, when people uh, complain about Rotten Tomatoes is that, We've lost so many of our alternatives. You know, we've lost so many of like that one voice of the guy that you listen to. Yeah. Um, For me, I really like Entertainment Weekly's reviewers. But even then, I'll kind of watch because, you know, there's one guy that that really favors the like tiny foreign movies that – Right. Well, like he won't like anything that's big budget, you know, at all, just on principle and so forth. So you kind of got to keep an eye on it. Yeah, I um, I used to read Entertainment Weekly all the time and I really 
kind of broke up with them and got mad at one of the reviewers when um, she gave Fight Club an F. And really? I, well, it's a polarizing film. It is. And Fincher was definitely not capital F Fincher back then. And I get now, 20 years later, that she just didn't get it. And that's fine. And I could have, you know, continued to read that reviewer and see what else she thought about stuff. But I just thought, how could she? That's, she doesn't understand. And so yeah. we were divorced after that. Like, I just went on to greener pastures. Nice. I love that you blew the entire magazine because of one <laughs> review. I well, plus, a... Oh, go you, ahead. You can get a lot of that information on the internet now anyway. I mean, That's the magazine true. itself is pretty much dead. I've had an Entertainment Weekly subscri- subscription since I was 14 years old. Wow. So I have honestly had an Entertainment Weekly subscription longer than I haven't had an yeah. Entertainment Weekly subscription. That's amazing. I know, right? It's kind of sad and makes me sound lonely. I do not have any cats. Like, I'm not sitting alone <laughs> in a room of them right now. Sure. Uh, but when I lived in L.A., I actually, when I went was going to USC, I wrote for the school newspaper, which sounds kind of like cheesy and Nancy Drewish. But um, mm-hmm. in L.A., they send the Daily Trojan writers to the big leagues. Sure. So I went to a lot of um, film junkets and got to, like, write up features and reviews on movies. And, you know, some of them were really little, and I would take it because, you know, I was – a sophomore and they gave them the grunt movies. Sure. Um, but then I had like the fellowship of the rings junket, um, or the X two junket or whatever. Right. So I actually am familiar with the experience of actual review writing. And I know how difficult it is because on the one hand, you are just desperate to have your own original opinion. And on the other hand, you're also desperate to know what everybody else is saying, because what if you're wrong? Right. Yeah. Like, unless you're super (laughs) confident and therefore kind of dick-like, it's really hard to say, this is what I think, and I stand by it, and that is that. Yeah. So on the one hand, I'm kind of impressed with that reviewer that gave Fight Club an F, because she didn't, like, look around and go, huh, a lot of people are giving this an amazing review. Maybe I need to think about this. (laughs) Right. Nope. She committed out. Yep. to her yep. thesis. She like leaned into that, and that's impressive. Yeah. The few reviews that I've written for the local the web magazine here, I've done the same thing where it's like I'll come home um, from the screening, and then I put my thoughts down, and I so badly want to look oh, you at do. Like, what you anybody so else – yeah, because I'm like, am I doing? Am I saying the right thing? And I have to go, no, no. I'm just gonna, even if I, you know, pull off in a really weird direction. And a lot, we got a lot of flack for my uh, Guardians of the Galaxy two review, which was positive, but I had a lot of like things to say about it that I didn't yeah. like. There were um, qualms. I yeah, had qualms. right. Yeah, and I would lose any of that if I was like, no, well, it's pretty good. It's not as good as the first one, but you know, it's pretty good. Yeah. I had yeah. to be honest. Uh, well, this film didn't fare too well on any review site. Today we're adventuring into Congo, where you yes. are the endangered species. Well, and I need to mention, based on your intro, that this is not a movie I would die defending. <laughs> okay. If we were talking like a bad movie or a, a generally understood to be bad movie that I would sure. die defending, that would probably be uh, Last Action Hero. Which oh, okay. was mm-hmm. just way freaking ahead of its time. And when you watch that movie now, OMG. But mm. Congo is a terrible movie that is f- bad, but it is terrible and bad in fun and interesting ways. Yes. And maybe we can flip flop on this one because after having seen it, and I think I was telling you before we started uh, heated the mics up that I'm not sure I've actually seen it before. And watching it, I might die defending this. 
Really? Well, here's the thing. I think I we've spoken about this before. I think we were talking at Convergence this year um, about bad films. And like for me, it's always been one of the reasons I started this segment and this show is that I never got why my movie uh, friend or movie fan friends enjoyed bad movies so much. For Uh me, the whole thing is. You, you know, you're doing it wrong if you watch a bad movie. You don't want to catch a brick. You know, you want to watch a good movie. Sure, sure. And so, I, so I started this like quest where I'm watching these bad movies, and somewhere in the middle of this long, boring slog through the jungle with Ernie Hudson playing a British, <laughs> a British guy, the great white hunter who happens to be black. Who happens to be black? That is a yeah. quote from the movie, not me being uh, labeling right. right there. I just reached this. Like this point, this unbearable lightness of being where I was just like, okay, movie, I'm ready. Bring it on. I am for you, movie. Just whatever you got. Come on. Just get it all out here. I want to see what you got. Well, you know, did you look into at all the making of this movie and how it kind of came about? Well, I definitely want to talk about that in one sec. Let me get the particulars out of the way. Um, It is Congo. It is 22% on Rotten Tomatoes, 22 on Metacritic, and a 5.1 on IMDb. All pretty bad. It came Mm -hmm. out in 1995. And it uh, was directed by Frank Marshall, the super producer, Frank Marshall, of course, um, husband to Kathleen Kennedy, who helped start Amblin Entertainment and produced pretty much all of Spielberg's films and a lot of other things in the modern era, like the uh, Bourne movies and uh, Benjamin Button, Sixth Sense, that sort of thing. And it was uh, written by John Patrick Shanley, who I have a whole thing about uh, that we'll talk about in a little bit. But yeah, please tell me about the making of this film. Well, so Michael Crichton, who wrote the book, actually pitched this as a movie before he ever wrote the book. And when he pitched it, what he was interested in was making a movie that was more like King Solomon's Mines. And I had to look this up because I didn't know. But um, Alan Quarterman, who is Sean Connery's character in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and that's how I knew that. Right. So King Solomon's Mines is an adventure story about Alan Quarterman, and it began and it kicked off what is sort of seen as this sub sub genre of the lost world movie and that's yeah. not a not capital letters those are lower letters which is just a movie where you travel to like a distant often jungle paradise in search of something and you know you run into all these problems with both man and nature along the way right and so Crichton pitched Congo as that as as a new fresh King Solomon's Minds, but with gorillas, and sort of couched in these very interesting scientific developments in you know the study of gorillas, right. and all that sounded interesting. And then he realized, and and they actually got quite far into production and casting, and then he found out that there are no gorillas that can do this, that could right. perform you know the role that becomes the role of Amy. Um, he kind of assumed that, you know, somewhere out there was a gorilla with just dreams of Hollywood, I guess. Right. Yeah, get me the gorilla. You know, just like, get, yeah, just uh, ca- casting get some something. I don't know. Yeah, get some headshots of gorillas. Right. Uh, but once he started to really look into it and discovered that there were no gorillas that could perform in this way, he dropped the project. And then right. he went off and he wrote the book. And the book came out in 1980. Right. Which is still a long, long time before the success of Jurassic Park. So then you flash forward to 1993 and Jurassic Park has become not only a successful book, but also a tremendously successful movie. Mm -hmm. And as always happens when there's a tremendous success, Hollywood started looking for the next Jurassic Park. And Jurassic Park is a movie that I 
love to death. It is in my top 10 movies of all time, easily. Um, It is amazing that it holds up very well today. Uh, But what it really boils down to is that it's a creature feature. Yeah. Right? It's It's a movie about humans against these creatures that they have underestimated and the creatures go crazy and start killing them. Right. Like that's a very old genre. It just happens to be a remarkably well done example. Yeah. So then what happens is you have Congo, the book, which is, you know, the 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 kind of King Solomon's Minds Lost World subgenre adventure. And then you have Jurassic Park, the creature feature, and you have a movie studio that is trying to smush those two ideas together and then have bad robot apes perform them. Right. And so it is actually this beautiful, perfect storm of nonsense. <laughs> yes. That, that is what you get out of all that. And, and it's so interesting because it's like, you know, Dave Barry has a bit in one of his books about the most avoidable car accident in the world, which is where <laughs> you have like this one idiot man who's driving in the like far right lane. And then you have the one idiot man who is... And, and that's not me. He says man specifically okay. who is coming up the on ramp and neither of them wants to move over for the other. And so the cars crash very slowly together, very sure. slowly together. <laughs> and it is the accident that everyone can see happening and right. no one stops. Yeah. Like at any moment to say, Hey, maybe something's off here. Yeah. Maybe we should stop. <laughs> So, I was I was looking at a list of the movies that Frank Marshall has produced, and you know it's extensive. I mean, he and his wife uh, Kathleen Kennedy have produced many, many movies. And at some point, you must just I, not everything is going to be a winner. Do you know what I mean? Like when you're and as an artist, I'm sure you feel this. You want everything to be the best. Maybe you feel like something isn't as strong as something else. But that mindset of the producer must be: we've got a talent, we've got B a storyline that's halfway coherent we've got Mm -hmm. c some kind of hook like gorillas or diamonds or lasers or something toss it out there and then i guess you never know whether it's going to succeed or not well the thing is frank marshall is known for producing great movies yeah but he's not just the producer of this movie he's the director and that's very significant because up until this movie the only uh feature films that he had directed was Arachnophobia, which was his first feature, and which is an okay little B movie. Yeah. And then um, a movie called Alive, which I had never heard of until I was uh, looking up Congo. Soccer team movie. Yeah, it's like a soccer team. So you know, I don't know if it did well or not. But the point is that we we think of Frank Marshall for all these like great huge blockbusters, but a producer has a very different role from a director. Yeah. Um, and it's also a role that has a whole spectrum of involvement. Like yes. sometimes producer is just like making a couple of phone calls and introducing a few people to each other. Sometimes producer is like on set most days, but director is like the guy, you know, right? Yeah. Or, or, yeah. or the lady. He also directed uh, after this eight below the Paul Walker sled dog movie. Yes, he did. <laughs> and you know what? Not a lot else. No, no, that's true. And, While we're talking about people who do one thing and aspire to direct, we can Mm -hmm. talk about Michael Crichton himself. Oh, yeah. has directed several films. And he originally was going to direct Congo in the the first iteration. And he had written it for 
uh, Sean Connery because I guess he had so much fun working with him on Last Train Robbery or Great Train Which Robbery. you don't hear a lot about Sean Connery. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I had so much fun with you. That's <laughs> right. just not a that's not going to be on his tombstone. Yeah. You know? And a lot of the films that he ended up doing would be great additions to this show. Um, oh, like, yeah. Like Runaway with uh, the robot spiders and uh, Tom Selleck. Crichton, Crichton was a very interesting guy. And, you know, I was reading that when he was – and I don't know if this is true. It's just on the internet. But I was reading that when he was plotting Congo, he would actually go to an isolation chamber. Right. And, like, lay and float and plot the movie. If, right, yeah. <laughs> and I honestly – I cannot decide if that is just, like – a ridiculous douchebag affectation or like the most genius plotting uh, strategy I've ever heard. I does, honestly don't know. How does it he write? Go either way. When you have an idea, how does he write something down? Yeah, there's that. Just like, like on must, the, he must just plan it and like keep a, I don't know, keep a notebook right outside. Maybe he has like a whiteboard in there with him. Right. He's know. writing on the, on the lid of the thing and with a marker. Um, that would be kind of awesome. Actually. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. But uh, you know, all those films that we named the robot spiders and the whatever, they all share that sort of scientific background that he's got. Sure. And he's definitely putting that in here. So, you know, and whatever I've read, like um, articles about this, there's a good one on a Den of Geek. They talk about how they just tossed the book. I feel like a lot of the book is still sort of there a little bit. They, I don't think... they did keep some of it. Yeah. yeah, they they changed a lot of the important stuff. And a lot of the characterizations have shifted. Laura Linney's well, character, yeah. Ross, is very, very different. Yeah. Um, in the book, she is like an ice queen. Um. In fact, I almost – this is something I wanted to talk about. I almost prefer the movie version of Ross. Okay. Um, because when I was watching it, uh, again for this, and I – there are so many problem, ridiculous problems with this movie, <laughs> most of them leading back to the fact that they did not have the technology to make the movie they wanted to make. Yeah. Uh, but Ross is actually kind of fa a fantastic character. She's a complete badass. She does not have a romantic interest, love interest yeah. at all. Like right. she used to date one of the characters, but it's not really a thing. No. But she's never sexualized. She doesn't wear a bikini. She doesn't cry on screen. Right. She's ex-CIA and she wears khaki and baseball caps. And she's very pragmatic and cool under pressure. Right. And if you look at like the other kind of big action movies that were coming out at this time, you have Goldeneye, which is <laughs> a Bond movie where, you know, like a woman kills somebody with her thighs and <laughs> right. uh, Batman forever where Nicole Kidman just kind of like purrs around in slinky dresses. Right. That was your problem. So, uh, you know, even Jurassic park had to stick in a romantic relationship between Ellie and Grant and make yeah. them partners, which was not in the book. Right. So I, the one thing I just legitimately respect about this movie is what they did with Laura Linney's character, because she's a very unconventional uh, action movie heroine at the time. And the fact that there really isn't anybody who like calls her a bitch or like makes jokes about having sex with her, you know, like you have all, the, she's, she's on this expedition with all these men and they all treat her with respect. Right. Like these are not things that are common tropes in, uh, action movies of the nineties. I'm trying to remember. I, I went through a Crichton phase, probably like a lot of people, um, after Jurassic Park came out, and I read pretty much all of his books that I could get his, my hands on at the time. And I can't. Well, as I was watching this, I was trying to remember if I had watched Kong or read Congo, and I don't remember. Like I remember 
Something you would a... remember the ape research because that See, book is like 90% ape research. I kind of remember that and I remember like bits with the balloon. So I feel like I probably read it, but it, it's neither here okay, nor there. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I can, I can actually, I can, I can solve this. Do you remember Stone Paddles? Stone Paddles? Um, I don't think so. Okay, because in the book, the, first of all, the book has way better action scenes than the movie, which is kind of ridiculous movie way to go. Um, <laughs> like the, so do you know, you know, the scene in the movie where they have like set up a perimeter fence and the apes are like attacking it frequently. Right. That is a huge sequence in the book. And it's actually very similar to aliens. Only well, I yeah. believe the book came first where they're counting down the rounds and they're yeah. basically like counting down to their own death. Right. I want to say it came out in Congo first. Okay. Um, but the the whole creepy thing about these white apes, which are frankly terrifying in the book, is that they use tools. Yeah. They don't kill people by sort of running up to them and menacing, which is what they seem to do in the movie. They like, <laughs> right. Don't they kind of just like wiggle at them in a threatening manner and then the people and are like ah, and they die. Yeah. yeah. No, in the books, in the book, the people who originally trained the apes to be their guard dogs gave them stone paddles. These okay. white stone paddles. I think of like a like a wooden canoe paddle. Yeah. And what the apes would do is they would tuck the handle of the of they would have two paddles and they would tuck a handle under each arm and they would clap the paddles together and squish someone's head. Okay. That does sound familiar. But in the book, they're like, they're not just apes. They're like human ape hybrids or something like that. Uh, that could be correct. Yeah. I okay. haven't read it. I haven't read it in 20 years either. But man, the stone paddles made an impression because they were genuinely frightening. And part of it is that they have learned to use tools and they have learned to use weapons. Right, right. Well, they're a lot more menacing in the book than they are in the film. Oh, my gosh. They're ridiculous. <laughs> they're barely in the film. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Well, we'll talk about that. I wanted to finish up real quick talking about uh, the writer and the director, um, specifically about Frank Marshall uh, doing research about him. I learned something that I didn't know about him is that in addition to being a super producer, he also <laughs> he also is a DJ and he's a magician as well. And he's known wow. as DJ Master Frank. And Dr. Fantasy when he performs magic. Wow. That I mean, is... every, everybody's got to have a hobby. I tend to just sort of think of him as uh, um, Kathleen Kennedy's arm candy, but okay. Right, right sure. <laughs> yeah, you can. He's at uh, at Lay, as in like L.A. French, uh, Lay Doctor on Twitter. And he oh, wow. retweets people who go, Thanks, Dr. Fantasy, for doing some magic tricks. Or, Hey, I met DJ Master Frank at this, uh, you know, at this record shop, and it's so exciting. Wow. There's a Lego, um, there might be in the movie too, I'm not sure, but there's a Lego Jurassic World character named DJ Master Frank after him. I did and not then, know that. Now put your tinfoil hat on. That connects to the fact that there is Jimmy Buffett's in this film. <laughs> and we'll yes, talk he about is. It. He's in Congo, which is, yes. I did not know. And they're, and they're big buddies. And then people think that Jimmy Buffett is in Jurassic World because there's a guy with the margaritas or whatever. Nobody's ever right. really confirmed that, but it, it's all connected, man. <laughs> Well, uh, John Patrick Shanley, this drives me nuts because this guy, you know, he is a he's a well-known he's an Oscar winning uh, writer or screenwriter. He wrote Moonstruck. OK. 
and he also wrote uh, Joe versus the Volcano. Okay, going down a little Not bit. Not known for being a great film. Yes. Uh, he wrote Doubt, both the stage play and the screenplay. All right. And yeah, and directed Doubt as well. Uh, and yeah, he's just all over the map. And my thing is, and he wrote Alive, like I said before. He also wrote um, a movie that I covered on Just Enough Trump, one of the worst films I've ever seen, but that same sort of, <laughs> what is going on? It's a Kevin mm-hmm. Klein movie, a movie called The January Man. Oh, I hadn't even heard of that. Which is not very good. So No kidding, really? As like as a writer, can you maybe tell me is there t- are there times that you take it seriously and there's times that you're just like punching a time card or something? Like how could you oh. make Moonstruck and then make We're Back a dinosaur story? Okay. Well, this is a screenwriter novelist discrepancy because the the thing with screenwriting is that uh there are so many fingerprints on every finished movie. Oh, sure. And so most of the time, the movie that is made is miles away from the the original screenplay. Okay. So then what it often becomes is sort of a sort of complicated blame game for who did what. And <laughs> and, and I mean that in both the positive and negative way. Like sometimes right. you have a crap script and then you hire – some brilliant screen script doctor who, by the way, will never get credit anywhere. You will never find it online. Sure. <laughs> and they turn everything around. So I know nothing about this for sure. But just an example, it's completely possible that Moonstruck was, he did the first draft and then six other screenwriters handled it but had a deal to not say that they handled it. Okay. Or it's possible that he wrote the first draft and it was brilliant and the reason Congo is bad is because then the studio hired six other screenwriters and didn't sure. tell anybody. Sure. So it's a shell game when it comes to screenwriting. Whereas as a novelist, one of the reasons I love writing fiction is because good or bad, what's out there is mine. Yeah. You know, there's going to be an editor that 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 had some contributions and a good editor has great contributions that make my work better. But ultimately, I don't have to say yes to anything. Um, You know, they they can't rip giant holes in my book and publish it without my permission or knowledge. That's just not a thing. Whereas once you write a screenplay and you sell it, you know, you have to negotiate how much further involvement you'll have. And it could be none or it could be a ton. Right. And it's something like with Doubt, where he's written the play and then he adapts the screenplay. He's directing it. He lands Meryl Streep and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like it turns yeah. out great because nobody messed with it. Right. So, you know, that that's a really hard thing to judge. My guess is that Congo had... And then, you know, sometimes you do get multiple screenwriters and it just it works out okay, which is what happened with Spider-Man Homecoming. I want to yeah. say there were six credited there were, screenwriters. Yeah, there were six. Yeah. Usually I've found upwards of three and you're in trouble. Oh, yeah. Like you can because often you have writing partners with screenplays. And then yeah. so so two is totally normal and fine. Sometimes you can get like a third person in there or it's based on a novel and then they get credit or whatever. But yeah. once you get past three you know, yeah, I gotta say, Spider-Man Home, yeah, Spider-Man Homecoming is the best film I've ever seen with six screenwriters, except maybe uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh yeah, that's fair. That's a different situation, but yes, that's fair. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, so we got that locked away. And as far as the script goes, I, I don't think that it's 
a horrible script necessarily. There are certainly points where an artiste or somebody who considers themselves to be like a you know master of dialogue or wordsmith has added these little elements where you go, well, that's a touch. That's an artistic touch. Like there's a reason that somebody is really obsessed with whether or not you're eating their sesame cake. And there's okay, a reason that's that... hilarious. That's one of my favorite parts. <laughs> Stop <laughs> eating my sesame cake! Yes. Well, we could just talk about who's in this film. Delroy Lindo in an uncredited role. Uh, yeah, he doesn't. Uh, and then, of course, Tim Curry uh, literally stops eating it by taking it out of his mouth. Uh, right. Or there's there's a part, you know, where it just seems like every character has a very specific characterization. Like very few people, I think, are like they winging have one it. One quality. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, they have one quality, and it's like that's what their thing is. Um, yeah. You know, Ernie Hudson is um, the stereotype of the great white hunter character. Of course, he's not white um but he's that all the way through yeah and so we've got these archetypes these characters that have been assembled by this writer who goes i'm going to make sense of this <laughs> scribble on the lid of a uh, sensory deprivation tank that was given to me right <laughs> you know ernie hudson's character is fascinating because yeah. on the one hand ernie hudson seems to be having the time of his life he has uh, said in interviews that this is one of his, if not his most favorite role. Right. And I can totally see that because this movie belongs to him and he owns his role. Except when you actually really listen, Monroe is the worst character because all he does in the whole movie is tell everyone who they are and what they're doing. Oh. So, you know, so when when he meets. Uh, Mr. Homoka, the Tim Curry character, he just kind of immediately comes out and says, I remember you. You are the guy that did this and this. Yeah, and then he meets yeah. somebody else and he says, oh, I know exactly what you're doing. You're doing this and this and we'll see how it turns out. Yeah. So his role <laughs> is to kind of go through the movie and, it, you know, he's a translator and he's translating the story to the audience. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, info dump from him in that in that way. There is, there is, but also just when he talks to the characters, he's telling them exactly who they are and their purpose in the movie, right. which <laughs> is so lazy. But at the same time, he says it so just cheerfully and with such charm that you're you're kind of just rolling with it. Yeah, and his, like you said, his. Uh, uh, his interpretation, his performance of the character is just, it just takes you along. You know, if you oh, yeah. really listen to his accent, it doesn't, it's horrible, you know. And but, what is but it? Like, what is that accent? I don't even know. Yeah, I don't I even no know. Idea. Yeah. At I least just, with I... Tim Curry, they tell you he's Romanian. And <laughs> yes. I don't know any Romanian people that I could just verify that. He is At stock, least he comes with a story. Stock movie Romanian is what he is. Yeah, right yeah. out of the box. Where, uh, but, because it but, just has... It, it's almost a um, like a Cary Grant accent. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Sort of old timey. I think my favorite scene in Congo is when they're in Africa or one of my favorites, certainly, is when they're in Africa and uh, he is standing with Peter, poor, poor Dylan Walsh, who's, you know, this has <laughs> just got to be the worst experience of his life. Right. Anyway, he's standing with Dylan Walsh and a, a silverback gorilla not a, not one of the magic white gorillas, but supposedly a regular gorilla, charges yeah. them. And Ernie Hudson's character is like, don't move. And he's don't like, yeah, I, well, I know, I've read the books, because he's actually a primatologist. Right. And uh, and then it kind of, the, this, the camera does this very clever thing where they follow, you know, uh, Peter's character, and the gorilla runs away, and Peter turns to look at Ernie Hudson, <laughs> and Ernie Hudson is gone. And he's like 50 feet away, and he's like, yeah. and Peter's like, what happened to you? And he's like, ah, 
I ran away. <laughs> That's it. I'm in the most cheerful, charming manner. I ran away. Sorry like, about that. <laughs> yeah. You just got to kind of love it. You know, most, yeah. most uh, male hero characters, you'd think, they, you'd think less of them for running right. away from a gorilla. Right. But because it's Ernie Hudson and because he's having the time of his life in this role, you're, you laugh <laughs> and it's funny when, yeah, yeah. you know, really it's, it's, he should be the butt of the joke and he's not. Right. Yeah. And, and he's got a uh, black t-shirt on and a brown overshirt uh, that's a button up and it makes me think of Winston Zedmore. So that's fun. Oh, there is one shot in this movie where he has a machine gun and he's holding it and he's kind of creeping forward and he's wearing a backpack and, uh, uh <laughs> And there's just this one shot where I was like, oh, stop everything. I'm having like a Winston flash moment. Right. And then and then I remember what movie I'm in. And it's like, oh, oh, it's just Congo. Yeah, right. There are a lot of actors in this film that I would describe as they're, they're going to come up on the show again. They're usual suspects in the sort of B-movie actor bouquet, except for Laura Linney, who at the time, you know, was not as big as she is now. No. Everybody on this list are all people who you could see in a sci-fi original film or on a USA series at any time. And we talked about Dylan Walsh, uh, Ernie Hudson. I love that Joe, Joe Don Baker. Oh, yeah. Joey Pants is in this. Joey Pants is in this movie. I... I think they kind of hired solid, dependable character actors. Right. Like, these are the people who you would hire in fairly decent movies, but they would be like the guy that watches the moon landing on a screen, you know, with a little <laughs> microphone on his ear. Right, yeah. Like, the, it's that guy. It's it's. He's it's, actually cast right in this film because he's the guy who, like, drives the golf cart or whatever and then shows up once or twice to get him off with the uh, on their journey. With the brilliant shirt. Gone. And by brilliant, I'm referring to the colors. And right. not the quality, like yeah. his shirt in this movie, which, which he wears. I don't know. I, I honest to God couldn't tell you if they're two different shirts or yeah. if the first shirt has some sort of like sentience and it's sort of crept its colors around and it's still the same shirt. Maybe there's it's exciting yeah. stuff happening <laughs> with that shirt. Yes. Uh, and Joe Don Baker, uh, of course, is in it in the beginning and the end. Uh, so this blew me away. John Hawks is in this. And John Hawks is another guy who definitely went on to do more than this, but has still not really, even after his Oscar nomination for Winner's Bone, you know, hasn't become like a big thing. But it's so weird to see him have literally like one line, which is like, ah, gorilla. And then he just dies. Well, and Bruce Campbell, man, I mean, (laughs) he's an interesting choice because he, even by then, he is known for these, you know, very tongue-in-cheek, comical horror movies. And he does have a fantastic scream face, which I realized when I watched this again, that like, you know, you think of him for his comedy chops, but when he sees the, the great white ape and he really screams for the first time, you're like, man. There it is. I am scared for you, sir. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I heard that he had tried out for the role of Peter uh, right. and didn't get it. And then they just gave him this. And like Dodged I said, a bullet, Bruce Campbell. Well, maybe. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen him interact with the um, monkey with the power glove a little bit. Oh, but my like, gosh. But he's, I, I, you know, not having seen the film, I kept thinking, okay, this will be, he's the Dr. Livingston uh, Stanley thing. Like, they'll, they'll finally yeah. get there and he's been alive somehow. Nope, just laying in nope, a pile of bones. Dead. Super, dead. super dead. Yep. Spoiler alert. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, this is all spoiled. Uh, um, 
And yeah. for, can we just talk about poor Dylan Walsh and who he yeah. must life he must have ruined sure. to to take this role? Because it is the it is the hardest. Okay, not only is this poor actor who plays Dr. Peter Elliot, he's he's acting with a gorilla basically every time he's on screen. And it's not a real gorilla, even. It's a robot gorilla. And the movie takes great pleasure in implying some sort of romantic relationship between him and Amy. Did you notice this? Like, many times, characters walk past him and the robot and look at them and, like, kind of, like, you know, elbow each other and say, ha-ha, they're, like, husband and wife. Yeah, right. That happens, like, six times in this movie. Poor Dylan Walsh, like, must have just ruined someone's life to have to take this part where he is, like, romantically entangled with a robot gorilla. Right. And it's so weird, like, just looking at his credits, like, this was the beginning of the end. Like, this is the biggest thing he's ever been in. And it wasn't a failure. Um, it cost about $50 million and made about $150, $152 million. So, I mean, like, technically it was a success, but it didn't lead to anything for him. No, in fact, I I'm sure that it hurt his chances for a lot of things yeah. uh, because this movie did become kind of a joke. I mean, I always think of Congo as the antithesis of Jurassic Park. It is like the 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 dark double to Jurassic yeah. Park because the the two of them have so much DNA in common. I'm in your blood. <laughs> that was a good right. one. I have a Mr. DNA shirt that I wear every time there's a new Jurassic Park movie or okay. like they okay. show the original in theater or something. I go out in my Mr. DNA shirt. Anyway, sure. they do. They share so many just like on paper qualities, yeah. you know, right. and then but but then you look at the final project products and like Jurassic Park. I mean, you can watch that movie today and it's not like the science is perfect, but honestly, like the scares, the creatures, the the story beats all hold up so well, you know? Mm-hmm. And then you look at Congo, which even at the time it was like the technology was so bad, you know? It's not right. like watching war games where you watch that movie now and it's oh, a joke, no, it but at the time yeah. it was kind of cutting edge, you know? Yeah, yeah. This is not that because even even when Congo came out oh, in 95, oh. it was the the effects are just so terrible with the apes. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that the difference or the similarities between them. Like, it's not like Jurassic Park is the Godfather as far as script goes. Like, it's not, you know, it's. I feel like it's the same thing with sort of one notish characters up against these circumstances. It was written by um, David Kep, who's written a lot of great stuff, mm-hmm. but they're very similar. So it's like, why? Why do you think it is that one hit and one didn't? Um, other than, you know tiny women in gorilla suits instead of cgi dinosaurs i think it's the genre clarity yeah jurassic park knows that it's a creature feature and its goal is to elevate that to dinosaurs okay and honestly like you if if this was a race jurassic park has been given like math you know or speed (laughs) or something like it is it has gotten an unfair advantage because it's dinosaurs and dinosaurs are cool that's just yeah. one of the facts of life, man. Dinosaurs <laughs> are cool. That is yeah. just that. And so Jurassic Park already had that going for it. But it's very comfortable and aware of the fact that it is a creature feature. And it is about man's hubris and um, man versus mother nature. And it also uh, really celebrates dinosaurs both as terrifying monster and 
this awestruck like thing to be just really beheld and admired. You know, the first scenes, right. the first scenes where we really see dinosaurs, not the the scene where they get sucked into the raptor cage, but when we really see them, it's all awe and majesty and oh my gosh, nature and you know, Jurassic Park knows what it is and it does that really well. Whereas yeah. Congo is trying to be Jurassic Park with a story that is nowhere near the same genre. Yeah, it's a, Jurassic Park's paced a lot better too because Congo. Oh yeah, like like we discussed, is trying to capture that old sort of fifties tra- or forties travelogue yeah, know, jungle yeah. adventure film, and a lot of this film is just them traveling from place to place and there's a lot of foreplay and then by the time we get to the last act you know the last maybe 15 20 minutes of the movie it turns into aliens or it turns into some yeah. other completely different film a movie which i would have enjoyed watching by the way even with the bad robot apes you know i actually clocked it and it takes an hour and nine minutes to get to the camp where the inciting oh. incident takes place okay you know you have the inciting incident which is bruce campbell's character you know being attacked by the mythical white apes yeah. and uh and then you're supposed they're supposed to get back there well it takes an hour and nine minutes which is almost <laughs> a- the entire rest of the movie just yep. get to the site yep. and that's not even like seeing the white ape that's arriving at the location yeah like, can you imagine if jurassic park took an hour and nine minutes to arrive at the park now, that would not be so good. No, no, no. It is it yeah. is very well paced and it's it's got a act structure that is tight as a drum. Whereas yeah. Congo is literally all over the place. Well, let's talk about the uh gorilla in the room. Let's talk about Amy. Oh, Amy. Movie. Amy, Amy. Ex- except for the fact that gorillas are sort of the, the, the problem or I guess the hook in this film, why are Amy and Peter in this film at all? Like after they so they begin this expedition. Sure. They get to the point where CIA lady is going to pay for it. Right. Why doesn't she just kick them off the plane? She doesn't really know that she needs them. Well, at all. then the movie makes a point later to say, "Thank goodness you have your ape," because that's the only reason we're letting you go. My little, uh, well, plot, my little gadget plot. broke and I can't find the laser anymore or whatever. So now the monkey knows where it is because oh yeah, she, remembers she like smells it in her own memories or something. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Right. Um, but other than that, there's just like maybe in the book it was more clear as to why we brought a monkey along. But they, it is. they combine these two. Uh, oh, it is in the book. Oh, the book is okay. So you know you've read Jurassic Park, the book. Yeah. And so you know that it is a huge part of that book is about chaos theory, right? Yeah. That's actually how they begin the different sections of the book is by right. is with Dr. Malcolm's chaos models. It's like the so, iteration of a fractal. Yeah. Right. Whereas in the actual movie that follows, that's a very small part of the story. You know, he gets like one monologue and that's about all that (laughs) happens. Well, Congo, the book, is about ape behavior and also to to some extent American Sign Language. Okay. And sort of and it, it goes deep into like the history of studying apes. And I think that's really Crichton's gift is he makes that interesting. Like Uh it. When I say out loud, oh, it's the history of primatology, like that doesn't really grab me. But (laughs) the way that he describes it and the way that he draws these characters into it is so interesting. And then you have the movie where not only do they not focus on that, but they make a point to have Laura Linney's character ask Peter, why teach an ape to talk? And he's and he shrugs. He has no answer. He has no answer. 
which yeah. is the dumbest freaking thing because they actually showed <laughs> us a clip of the technology with the the talking um arm right you know where where they showed a person who was born without uh vocal cords being able to speak with the magic what did you call it the glove of wonder the power glove the yeah. power glove uh <laughs> so that hey look there's a reason that you just put on screen like right. But but they like one of the things I was thinking of as I rewatched this movie is what are they saying about academ- academia and like doctors and professors who study things? Because Peter seems to have no idea why he's doing any of the things that he does. Know, like right. Amy is like his child and he raises her like a child. <laughs> Don't give him any more grant money. He's not going to discover anything at this point. Right. Right. <laughs> and then like he is the worst professor I've ever seen. He can't even elevator pitch the project that is walking next to him as an ape. Right. Talking ape. Yeah. <laughs> like you have a talking ape and you can't explain what you're doing. What you know, and in the book they actually discuss like the budget of training Amy and taking care of her. And the book is much more interested in the concept of if you teach Amy sign language and then you send her back to live among natural gorillas, what could you learn? Yeah. And, you know, and it makes a point to tell you that like there's an epilogue where Amy does go out into the wilderness um, and, and rejoin a gorilla family. But there's an epilogue where Peter like goes to Africa years. I want to say years later, sometime later, and he meets a baby chimp or a a baby gorilla and she signs to him right yeah because amy's been like teaching the apes so yeah so it's much more about that and that science and that biology whereas you know peter in the movie is just a dunce and he's a very unlikable dunce at least at the beginning you know he keeps trying to leave everybody he's like these people suck and i don't want to be here with you like you're all criminals, and I'm gonna run into the gunfire of the, uh, the scary guys with machine guns because I have principles. Yeah, right, right. Like, yeah, he need has... a room. <laughs> yeah, he has no reason to be there. Even at the end of the film, like Amy, like grabs the glove herself and puts it on so yeah. she can go yell at the monkeys later to leave yeah, them alone. Yeah. Um, Crichton's books. I'm I'm totally remembering now that I did read this book. I just probably read it really fast and didn't understand it. But I I know that there's a lot of things in his fiction or a lot of sort of things that he does. And one of them is I love how he always he applies these scientific things and then he takes it another step farther and he always leaves his worlds like changed. Like, um, you know, Jurassic Park, you know, we live in this world now where somewhere on some island um, there's pterodactyls who have gotten off the island or now there are signing monkeys or there is um, a bug from outer space that's somewhere in Andromeda strain. And then he also has these like um, sort of familiar. This is maybe just a author thing like he's writing faster he's not like big on character but he follows a lot of the same character archetypes i think he's always got like a brainy mathematician or scientist guy who's yeah, sort of attached yeah. and explains everything and then i always feel and you were mentioning like um the depiction by laura linney and, and laura dern uh, before but i feel like his female characters do tend to be sort of detached and not really in touch in a man's world sort of so maybe they're trying to be like real serious and not feminine well and in the casting of somebody like laura linney or definitely laura dern they they help to subvert that i think and bring more character to those characters well yeah yes and no i mean i really liked ellie the book version better Uh like i i love laura dern and i think she does a great job with the role she has but 
Ellie in the book is a much more believable, like she's a grad student. She's engaged to another grad student who is simply not, does not happen to be with her because she's working. Right. Um, and so she, you get the sense that she has a life outside studying dinosaurs, which to me makes her <laughs> right. seem like, or actually she's, she, excuse me, she doesn't study dinosaurs at all. She's a paleobotanist. She studies plants. Yeah. Um, but you get the sense that she is a more full, like has more dimensions to her life. There's just no reason to go into them for this story. And right. I, I can appreciate that. Um, whereas the, the Ross character in Congo is very hard and cold and, uh, and she's more of a one note. So, you know, they almost kind of flipped it for the movies. Uh-huh. Where they they sort of took a few dimensions away from Ellie for Jurassic Park and added a few dimensions to uh, Ross for Congo, the movie. Right, right. Yeah, um, the elements in this film, there are elements in this film, all the technological elements in this film are just added because it's a 90s movie, I think. Like, I think in the original book, the diamonds are for... um, semiconductors, like, like in computers. It has nothing to do with communication or lasers or anything like that. And so that's in there just to be cool. And then, like, you know, I was thinking about it. The talking part of the gorilla is not even, like, necessary. Like, it's cool that that one guy in the video uh, can speak to people that don't understand uh, ASL. But right. for the monkey, we never, ever really need that. Like, she could just come along because he wants to take her to the jungle. He could interpret for her. It'd give him something more to do in the film. But instead, like you said, he just kind of wanders around and is the guy who doesn't want to be in the movie. Yeah, he's, and... he's the, like... <laughs> The dick character. He's a stick in the mud. He, exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Well, yeah. I honestly, it's been so long that I I can't promise this since I read the book. But I want to say that the the talking glove wasn't a thing in the book, or it certainly was not as much of a thing. They added that for the movie and emphasized it because they didn't want to have to have uh, Peter translating every word she said. Yeah. And they also didn't trust audiences enough to know how to read. So they didn't put it in subtitles the way, you know, you often see with, with ASL in <laughs> right. in movies now. Yeah. Um, apparently, it, it, you know, in Hollywood for many, many years and still to this day, they do not trust audiences to be willing to stay with a movie that has subtitles in any way. Well, you so, just watch The Mummy and there's a lot of subtitles in that. Yes, with the, yes. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, this is changing in many ways. And I think the artist helped with this because that's a silent film where, you know, you have to read in order to to get anything out of it. But you're right. also having more hearing impaired characters um, and, and having more opportunities for texting and, and different things. I mean, now they will put subtitles up when characters are texting each other because right. that's easier than showing a phone screen. You know, they'll actually yeah, put right. subtitles on the screen. So I think yeah. that's something that is being, a, a, has become a lot more acceptable since 1995. But yeah. uh, at the time they didn't trust anybody to know how to read. Like anybody it's, who buys yeah. a ticket to Congo must not be literate. So <laughs> right. the, the science movie, movie about lasers book, and gorillas. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. Can't be literate, so. Uh, This movie amazes me because it was, you know, made for $50 million, and maybe that's just Frank Marshall as a producer um, being smart with money, but it, you know, it was shot on location in two locations in Africa. They shot in Costa Rica for some of the jungle sequences as well. And I think that it, for the most part, looks 
you know, pretty good. <laughs> it's either like a really expensive cable movie or like a sort of, you know, mid to low budget uh, feature. But like, I think it looks okay uh, for the most part. Uh, everything there are looks scenes... okay except for the robot apes who are in, well, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> in like every shot. Yeah, well, there's nothing you can do about that. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm uh, not over it. I'm still not over it, man. I have not acquiesced to the robot apes. Like, it's just still so well, you know what? Like today, you didn't buy her smoking that cigar. Oh my Come gosh! On. I don't know if the cigar or the martini is worse. Like in the book, I want to say she does drink alcohol, but there's like an explanation for it where she's actually like a juvenile gorilla. She's old enough to to kind of. <laughs> She's, be able to t- hold her liquor, I guess. She's 21 in, gr- in Gorilla, in gorilla years, years. Yeah. No, but, you know, it's just, it's one thing to read it in the book. And it's another thing to have a robot version doing it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, th- but seriously, think of the last, I didn't even see it, but I'm sure you've at least seen trailers for the most recent Planet of the Apes movie. Yes. Think of those apes and then oh, robot Amy. It's not even a contest. Yeah. Like, Honestly, if if I was if I had all the money in the world, I think it would be fascinating to redo Congo and just put in like computer generated apes and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A young, a young Andy Circus probably saw this and was like, it's not right. I can do better. <laughs> right. Well, you know, Stan Winston did work on these robot apes. So, yeah, he should have worked longer. <laughs> no that I, was one you, that was one of the things that Crichton said um i read in an interview somewhere where they were asking him like in the mid 80s like hey why didn't you you were working on this congo thing and he's like we can't do it like it's not gonna you can't just have rick baker in a monkey costume he actually said it'll never happen right yeah yeah uh it's not it's not good enough see and this is mm-hmm. i go back to like the world's most avoidable car accident where like it was so easy <laughs> to like see it coming and to to write the write the steering wheel and nobody did because right. they honest Zipper to God merge. did not right. have the technology to make yeah. this look real. How would you compare or contrast this to another film from around this time, six ninety six, ninety seven, uh Anaconda. Ah! Oh Anaconda. I love you. Are, are there diamonds in that too? I who cares, man? It's not about <laughs> that. Uh Anaconda <laughs> is about how fast and how hard John Voight can chew scenery. <laughs> that is the only purpose to that movie is to have everyone play straight against John Voight in an even more ridiculous accent. <laughs> and one thing you got to give Anaconda credit for. So the the snake, the Anaconda, at least follows the sort of Jaws rules of not being on screen every minute. Yeah. You know, and not that the the white apes who I guess are the villain of Congo, uh, not that they're on screen every minute, but Amy is and she's terrible. Like, you know, it's ugh, ugh. but uh, <laughs> Anaconda, you know, the, the they, they hold back the snake. You know, they don't have it on screen every second reminding you right. of how much it's computer generated. So right. and then they and they are able to play with it more to, to play with more practical effects. And have like I think they had a I want to say they had an animatronic snake head, you know. So yeah. there's there's these sort of there's there's much it's much more seamless. I'm not going to say it's completely seamless, but uh, it it's no. much better that way in terms of the creature effects. Anaconda also understands that its purpose is to be there as a creature feature. Yeah, and, right. And, and to do that as well as it can. Anaconda is like the best B movie that sci-fi didn't make. 
<laughs> it's right. the best it, sci-fi movie that was not made by sci-fi. It probably inspired all those like Mansquito and all those sci-fi films. I actually worked for sci-fi when I when I was in California. Um, oh. There's an intern there for USA and sci-fi because they're both owned by NBC Universal. And I was uh-huh. an intern um, my senior year. And, well, part of my junior year and all of my senior year. And then I worked there for about three weeks after graduation before we all got laid off. And that would be my sliding doors moment of my life. Anyway, I worked at Sci-Fi and we would like have these tapes and scripts all over the place with these um, the names of these movies. And so I was constantly just admiring them because uh, they're not made by Sci-Fi proper. They're like contracted out. Like there is a company whose ho- there are several companies whose whole job is to make those movies. So okay. it's not like the same team that's like producing Battlestar Galactica or whatever. Right. So uh, we would just I would just I would constantly be looking at these scripts and just respecting the genius <laughs> of these puns. I I love the way that these puns write the movie. Right. You know, yeah, I right. mean, it, somebody was obviously sitting around a table, probably smoking something, and said, "Wait, man, mosquito." <laughs> Just as many years later, somebody was probably sitting around a similar table, probably smoking the same thing, and said, "Shark." NATO. Oh my God! You know, Anaconda is like thirty-eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's even higher than Congo. Why do you think critics decided to just take the fungo bats to Congo? I mean, it's bad for sure, but uh, it's probably about on the same level as Anaconda. No, no, I disagree. Because you can't get over these monkeys. I, I honestly think it's the it's the hubris of Congo, which is sort of ironic. Like uh, Congo is Explain. the movie. Congo is a movie that is all about how technology fails us, right? Okay. And the irony of that is Congo fails because of technology. Like, the robot apes ruin that movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so Congo wants to be Jurassic Park. Anac- Anaconda wants to be, you know, creature from whatever. Like, it wants to be right. a ridiculous B-movie. Right. That's the goal. Like, Jennifer Lopez was not as big then as she is now she, oh, you know, she no, was no. she was a very she, her fame was small uh yeah. and and john boyt was kind of the headliner there you know ice cube was probably well, more ice famous cube. than jennifer lopez and yeah. and so that movie it has no pretension to it it has n- it's not trying to be Jurassic World. It's not trying to out or Jurassic Park. I mean, it's not trying to outdo Jurassic Park. It's trying yeah. to make a solid little B movie, and it's very successful. Sure, mission accomplished. Yeah, no, it it does everything it sets out to accomplish, which is so much more than I can say for Ed, for Congo, which is just it, it's so ambitious without having any of the integrity or maybe lack of integrity that Anaconda has. Like, yeah, and every, everything is so rushed too. There's yeah. like, I mean, you've you've got you can either do a one note joke, which is Ernie Hudson is the great white hunter, or you could try to do like clumsy, uh, unearned like social commentary on a lot of like stuff, like racial commentary. Yeah, and it's like called Congo, and they go through three or four African nations, and they try to tell you like who's fighting who, and there's you know the president is only president for a few weeks, he gets killed, and his cars blown up, and yeah, right, yeah, and it's like okay, but. That's not where we are talking about a talking monkey here, right? That's like that's not really what the movie's about. Yeah, I think I think Congo has no idea what it wants to be doing or what it wants to be about. Yeah. And, you know, as I was 
and the, I, I like creature features. I think it's a really fun little genre. Um, I'm a big fan of even the self-referential stuff, like Snakes on a Plane, which is, okay. Snakes on a Plane is like sort of the god of Sharknado. Like it, it, right. it, it, it is very meta, very self-referential. It knows that it's making these ridiculous paint strokes and it just celebrates that. Like I'm, sure. I'm good with that. I'm good with the like more serious Kong Skull Island kind of creature feature. I'm happy with all this. But yeah. Congo is trying to be, you know, the lost city of Zinj and be the great white ape. You know, there's like a 15 minute creature feature inside of this weird travelogue right. movie. Yeah, which is poorly shot. <laughs> At least for the action scenes, they're not very good at all. The the director does, um, like, when they first see the monkeys or they attack them in the temple, he does this, like, slow shutter speed thing. Where it's oh, all my gosh. That reminded me so much of Snake Vision. Oh, okay. Because okay. Yeah, no, exa- I know exactly what you're talking about because I made a note. Yeah. Like, it slows. They, they go into slow-mo because it's the only way they can even try to make the apes look scary. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and then poor Laura, Laura Linney is also in the slow-mo shot. Right. And she's like slow-mo waving a gun around. Right. And it's just like, <laughs> yes, we are now at the snake's point of view. <laughs> right. It's just, it's so bizarre and ridiculous. Oh, well, you're kind of blowing my high here. I, I really like this film. No. Or at least I wanted to like it really bad. Oh, uh, well, get well, over it. Yeah. No, well, I love look- Congo. I watch it every time it's on TV. I, I yeah. stick around for at least a while. Because yeah. I I think it's so fun and I think it's so interesting the ways that – like I'm a big fan of just kind of when bad movies are bad in a way that's interesting. You know? Uh, like yeah. a, a recent movie I saw just off the top of my head was, was Atomic Blonde, which is sure. a movie of action sequences and nothing else really. Yeah. It's, it's just spy tropes with – you know, surrounded by amazing action sequences. And yeah. the the badness of that is not interesting to me, you know? Yeah. It's, it, you, you can't just have a good time figuring out where they went wrong. Like, they obviously didn't put any effort into story except as a way to frame these, you know, kick-ass fight scenes. So do you think there is an heir to Congo? Like a modern-day something that's tr- that pulls off what Congo is doing? Stick with me. Stick with me okay. here. Okay, I, I'm already but excited. Through the sort of precepts that we've kind of set up, like a movie that has a lot to explain, has a lot to get you to sort of understand and buy, has technological challenges, and has to overcome sort of um, unscary bad guys and crappy action, um, The Matrix. The Matrix fixes all those problems. Uh, it also... Pull, totally pulls the rug out from under you and has to explain to you like this entire different world. It's got um, philosophical underpinnings that it doesn't dig too deeply into, but there's a lot of, you know, Buddhist Buddhism and stuff like that in it. And it takes a bunch of guys in black suits and makes them really scary. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> okay. You're not, you're not buying it. I'll try again. What about, I'll need a little more time though. Oh uh, no, this is right now. <laughs> the quiz is now and you're being graded. It's not an open book. No, no, no. I never gave open book tests when I was a teacher. I, it's, a, it's a trick question because they don't make this kind of movie anymore. They don't do this anymore. I don't you know? see. Uh, I would have to disagree because the more we talk about this, the more I think the mummy does this. 
Well, the recent okay. mummy, like the the Brendan Fraser mummy, is its own thing. Like that's very much trying to be like a romantic, you know, thirties kind of homage. Yeah, but in that way, I'd, I'd almost say that it's almost closer to Congo in in its sort of old timey structure. Because uh, because there is except for there's a thing at the beginning and then they travel for a long time and you're like all right so you're gonna get to a mummy eventually right and then they do <laughs> and then there's a big climax that's true uh, the mummy definitely shows up a lot earlier in the more recent version but I yeah. think that Congo is very guilty of trying to have its cake and eat it too like it wants all the it's sesame cake yeah it's sesame cake thank you i can't believe that i did not get that pun myself like it was right there and now i'm embarrassed i actually wrote that joke in my notes and i was going to see if it came up organically and it did so. oh but see now you've ruined it by saying that it was planned Whoop, whoops i'll cut that out. okay that, there you go man that's why you have your own podcast no right. um i think congo wants to be the King Solomon Mines Adventure movie, and it wants to be a uh, creature feature, and it wants to be the new Jurassic Park by any means necessary. And so it kind of like 10% succeeds at all of those, and 90% yeah. fails. Where I think right. the new Mummy movie is trying to be a Tom Cruise vehicle, it specifically vehicle for Tom Cruise. It's yeah. trying to set the the groundwork for this new dark universe situation and it's so so introducing us to these different characters that'll presumably recur like henry jekyll and yeah. it's trying to just hold its own as a summer tent pole mm. and a remake uh -huh. so it's trying to have its cake and wear eight hats too if i can mix like three metaphors yeah that's fine I'm uh, maybe i maybe i'd throw in the um richard chamberlain uh quartermain films for canon like the king solomon's minds like the nice. literal you going uh, back interpretation of the story i mean those are really cheap and really bad but you know like a canon film they know exactly yeah. what they are it, it makes me just kind of wonder like have we maybe this genre should die the the lost city <sighs> lost world thing like yeah. maybe in our in our time and I'm just making this all up as I speak right now because that's the way to go. Uh right. maybe in our time of like hyper connectedness, it's just not a great idea to tell the keep telling these stories. Like there's they've lost some of the appeal now that we can I could call Guam on my cell phone right now. <laughs> right. Well, as a purveyor of tales about old legends that come out into the modern world, I think you should uh, be careful there. That's true. I I am I still hold out hope for the dark universe, yeah. which is probably foolish and naive of me. But you know, nobody said <laughs> that I was not foolish or naive. Uh, I didn't say it. Let's talk about some of the uh, critics' reactions to this film in a segment I like to call the pick of the patch, <laughs> although I'm thinking about retiring that. Um, Stephen Garrett of Time Out said that it was dreadfully muddled, but mildly diverting. <laughs> and honestly, not looking at the site, I can't tell if that was a fresh or a rotten review. Sometimes <laughs> it doesn't make any difference, you know. Um, and Roger Ebert himself said that it was a splendid example of a genre no longer much in fashion, the jungle adventure story. So he's feeding off the same thing that uh, that you were just talking about. That's because I'm so smart and well-read and brilliant. <laughs> stuff. And I did go to school for four years to talk about this stuff. And this is the only way in which I'm currently using my degree. So we're going to just, <laughs> we're going to cling to it. Sorry, mom and dad. Um, Glad to be of service. I know, right? So we've talked about it. 
What's your final recommendation? Would you recommend this film or would you say stay away? Go into the jungle or stay at home? I would prescribe this film with two glasses of wine after a particularly stressful day. Okay. Okay. I can see that. Like, same as another favorite, Jaws the Revenge. Like, do you watch this expecting intelligence? No. You watch this <laughs> to, like, go on a romping, a ridiculous adventure you watch it with somebody that you like to make snarky remarks with. You do right. maybe a little a little light drinking or heavy drinking if that's your thing. I don't judge. And right. uh and and you have a good time. Like just so- just to see Ernie Hudson <laughs> and Tim Curry just having just the best time. And I I got to say that hippo thing was kind of scary. And it's so short. I mean, I don't know how you do a whole hippo movie. Um, sci-fi could probably tell you. But yeah, that was a really intense scene. And it's just over real fast. Yeah, it's true. Uh, if you like creature features, I do really recommend there's an Australian movie called Rogue that just does not get enough play. It's a huh. it's a crocodile movie. Uh, okay. But it's like a like a for real serious. Sam Worthington has a smaller role in it. Um, but then it's like. Rhoda Mitchell and uh, Michael Barton from Alias. So it just did not get a lot of talk, but it's it's a very solid creature feature film, like very suspenseful. Rogue. Rogue. I'll check that out. Um, I would also say, yeah, I think you should check this out. I agree with your two glasses of wine theory. Right. I also just agree with your... Uh, you know, open your mind, man, and maybe you'll uh, you really enjoy it. I also wanted to say, too, that uh, this is another sort of a game or segment I'm thinking of having on the show, which is the Craft of Services Music Minute. And it's only when it has to do with one song. And whenever you hear it in a movie, we're going to point it out. And it's the theme song I'm currently using for the show, which is the Minuetto by Luigi Bocciarini. It's that I call it the rich people walking around music. Mm, you're going to have to sing a few bars. Nice. That is rich Whenever, people walking around. I'm not saying that it's like a hacky thing, except it's a hacky thing. Like in the Delroy Lindo scene, we need to show, oh, this guy thinks he's, you know, effete and refined and he's going to eat sesame cake. And so in the background, right. that song is playing. Is that song really playing in the background? I did not even it notice. It absolutely is. It absolutely I is. I think I was just too excited about the sesame cake. I couldn't <laughs> yes. focus. Or the way that he very particularly takes the bribe from them and then he puts it in a paper bag and he staples it shut yeah. and he's like, don't, oh, we don't want anybody, anybody picking in there. Picking. Oh, right. and when he when I, I just love the way he says more like they give him <laughs> right. a huge stack of cash. He doesn't count it. He just gives him this cocky ass look and he goes more <laughs> like that is so you are so rad. Delroy Lindo. Yes. And you would go on to have a great-ish uh, career in the 90s uh, doing oh, yeah. character roles like that. And doing much better roles. Oh, definitely. But, uh, <laughs> but man, he just he's one of those actors who is great even if the movie all around him is garbage. Yeah, right. And a lot of the people in this film are kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and hey, respect for Laura Linney's remarkably feminist character. And also respect for her. I mean, she shows the work ethic that's going to make her a great and well-respected actress later on. Because yeah. she could have easily just went, eh, who cares? She could have phoned it in on this one. And right. no one would have blamed her. Well, that's it, I think, for Congo. Uh, thanks for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to let us know how you felt about this film, you can tell us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash craft services. We're also on Twitter at at craft disservice. 
no S. We're also on iTunes. Search for Craft of Services there and subscribe, rate, and review us. It helps us out a lot. And if we're also on Google Play, Stitcher, all that good stuff. Uh, Melissa, where can people find you online? Um, well, I wasn't listening to you because I was busy trying to find you on Twitter right now <sighs> on my computer. Great. But uh, I am at MelissaFOlson.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook with just the username Melissa F. Olson. And Instagram if you want to see pictures of like chinchillas and dogs and conventions. <laughs> and where can people find your books? Um, mostly on Amazon in select bookstores and libraries. Okay. Well, the credits are rolling. This is Aaron for Melissa saying keep it real. <laughs> 